This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras and lenses, but also anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing accessories, and so much more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% off your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com newsletter. When it comes to a personal fashion sense, I differentiate between people who are stylish and those who have style. For me, the former is about people who follow trends, or those who, because they are on the cutting edge, help to create them. People who have style are a thing to themselves. The way they dress is an expression of who they are. When you see them, you immediately know you're seeing someone unique and genuine. It's that quality that drew photographer Andrea Lowe and writer Valerie Liu to create their project, Chinatown Pretty. They approached senior-aged Chinese men and women who live in Chinatowns in the U.S. and Canada who possess that unique sense of style. They not only photographed them, but convinced them to share their personal stories of living in the U.S. and in Canada. The resulting book showcases the wonderful aesthetic of these people who provide us a glimpse into the richness of the Chinese-American community. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to the candid frame. I'm enjoying the book. I'm glad I found out about it. It's been a lovely tome to, to, to go through. And it really has sort of opened my eyes to something that was always in front of me forever, especially since, you know, we have I've frequented the downtown's Chinatown many a time. And uh, it's really revealed something very special to me that I, I, I'm looking forward to revisiting, you know, with this with this fresh perspective. Tell us about how this began for you guys, because I, I read in the book that you guys hung out a lot and you would have dim sum at a restaurant and you're always observing these people coming by. How did that appreciation of these people turn into an idea that you collaborated on? Yeah, so Andrea and I would go on these dim sum dates in Chinatown and we both had a visceral reaction to the street style that we observed on the senior citizens there. We'd be like, oh, did you see that hat and those shoes and that outdoor pajama set? You know, it made our heart race, made our eyes go super wide. And so we just wanted to investigate and understand how these senior citizens compose their outfits and more importantly, where they got their shoes. <laughs> so what was it ab ab about the style of, of the seniors where it was, it was, there was something specifically about these older people and their fashion style that really 
piqued your interest much more so than, you know, the other sort of fashionistas that are out there of, you know, of a much younger demographic. What was the fascination with people in their, you know, 70s and 80s and sometimes even older? I think a underlying theme that we see in the outfits, because they're quite varied, you know, so the style is, it tends to be a patchwork. So it's a mix of patterns, colors, eras. So a lot of clothes they've had for many decades, um, which we might think of as vintage clothing, but it's really just clothes they've kept for like 40 years, along with a lot of gifted items and clothes that they make themselves. So like the hat that Val's wearing um, is like hand crocheted. So there's a lot of these accessories because the seniors tend to be very resourceful or maybe worked professionally as seamstresses. So it's kind of all of that together. And I think what we notice is that they're tends to be a story behind these outfits that you can kind of, you start to see, see it emerge. And so that sparked this curiosity to know more about it because with all the juxtapositions of different elements, it just, yeah, it really invites a lot of questions and um, a lot of curiosity. Yeah. Cause I, I had noted just in my own experiences on the street, the layering that happens, the, the, the vests, the different shirts, the jackets. And I never made much, much sense to me, probably because I have no fashion sense to begin with. But it, it was really interesting to see that it was born out of a level of practicality, especially with contending with, with, with the weather, especially in cities in San Francisco. But there nevertheless was, for many of these people, uh, a sense of, if not so much style, about how certain clothes, you know, made them feel, which I guess is as much a, a fashion quality as anything else. Is that something that you, you already knew of or you became aware of as you started photographing and talking with these people? Uh, one of our main observations that is that it, they're dressing to keep the sun out, but also to keep warm at the same time. So a lot of layers and wide-brimmed hats. We noticed that Chinatown senior citizens are the ultimate urban dwellers so they're the ones that are like taking the bus into Chinatown or wherever they're going grocery shopping that day, having a cart for their groceries, wearing appropriate layers for when it gets windy, having a fanny pack or backpack to keep their belongings in. And um, they have to dress for all seasons and all kind of like situations. And so I think that informs a lot of their outfits is, uh, yeah, keeping warm, being ready to be out in the, the street for a while. It was really interesting to find out that some of the clothing they had, they had had for decades, you know, a jacket or a sweater, man, I don't have anything <laughs> that, that that's, I've had for that long or anything that would have lasted for that long. And that was really a sort of a fascinating aspect. And I suspect it's, it, it's, it's practical, you know, that they had those clothes, but it was really interesting to think about these people in terms of how they relate to their clothes. It's not like, you know, you think of some Instagram fashion person who has this walk-in closet with endless clothes. That these people likely have a, a very smaller, a smaller selection of clothing that's either been gifted to them or that they had for a long time. I noted several times that people had gotten stuff from China or from Hong Kong decades before, and that it was still part of their their wardrobe. Finding out in terms of how you know how these people basically brought together their own designs must have been one of the more pleasing things to find out along with, you know, at least getting to know the person and getting to photograph them. 
it can be a good conversation starter. So, I mean, all those things you noted were things that we were wondering about too. Um, you know, when you have clothes that are from the sixties that look like they were made by a tailor that you don't, you know, the style is like a little bit more Hong Kong or from, from China, it definitely, it definitely creates this sensibility, um, that, you know, we don't see on the street as much these days. I think you're right. There's a lot of holding on to clothes and we found the seniors tend to preserve their clothes really well. They treat them well, which much better, I think, than, than I can say I do. So they'll have, you know, for example, the Jungs who wore this matching yellow sweatsuit and they would wear that to exercise. They'd had the, those sweatsuits for 40 years and they looked bright yellow, brand new. So it just is pretty impressive, um, kind of the care that they take with their clothing as well. Tell me about approaching these people, because I know that you faced a great challenge in terms of getting people to stop and talk with you and, and pose for your, for your camera. From reading it, at least one of the dialects that they spoke was Cantonese, and there was another language or dialect that, that was spoken that neither of you speak. So how did you guys negotiate that whole challenge of being able to communicate with these people and explain to them what you were doing? You know, it's streets. It's a street style project. So we go out to Chinatown usually for about three hours at a time. And since neither of us speak the language, Toisanese or Cantonese, we um, usually have an interpreter with us. And so it'll usually be a group of three of us. And we just take laps until we meet, you know, someone that catches our eye and that we want to speak to. And then it's really about catching up with them and hoping that they'll stop, you know, take time out of their busy day to chat with us. So we have a 90% rejection rate. So most of the time people will be like, thank you with their palm in the air, meaning no thanks. But if we are lucky to get them to stop, we then kind of like compliment them and tell them what we notice about them. Let the conversation evolve naturally to like, what, what are you up to that day? Or, you know, where did you move from? Where are you from originally? And then at the end, we share what our project is about and then have them sign a um, consent form. So there's a lot of barriers. It's, it's a whole dance that we do. Yeah. Andrea, for you as the photographer, that's a lot of pressure to feel like, okay, now they've said yes. And now you get to pull off uh, a good image. So what, what were your considerations every time you, you found someone who was agreeable to being interviewed and being photographed? Right. Sometimes we're meeting people at the bus stop, which is actually a great place to scout for people because they're sort of <laughs> they're just there kind of bored but the issue is that sometimes the bus comes and then uh, right when we start talking with them so they have to hop on the bus and we might get you know just like five seconds to really capture them so that can be the challenge it's a it's a risk but we'll take it so yeah sometimes it's super ephemeral ephemeral and they just have to be while well, Val's kind of chatting them up trying to ask some questions I'll just look around trying to see where I might want to get my angle, um, see see what I might want to include in the shot where if they do have extra time, like where can I kind of bring them where the light might be a little more optimal. So it is sort of thinking ahead, a lot of thinking on on my feet um, as street style, as street photography goes. So it definitely keeps me on my toes. And I think that's, as far as the photography aspect, that's something I I enjoy about the project is you really kind of never know <laughs> what you're going to get. You kind of just have to take the shot and and be really quick about it and hope hope you got something good. So 
we'll take as long as it will give us, but a lot of times it is it is just a few moments and we have to make do. Yeah, besides the overall portrait that I enjoyed looking at, it was really wonderful when you guys would focus on particular details. Like there's one fellow who's wearing a vest and it's kept closed using clothespins. Not cl your clothespins? Safety pins. Safety pins? Safety pins. And I just, I just love that. That just that little quality that says so much about him, you know, and just the idea that that's something that probably most people would never pick up, but you were able to isolate in the, in that photograph. Stuff like that is is was probably one of the great pleasures. And you can tell me, I, but for me as a photographer, I would feel like when I see little details like that, my you know my synapses start firing because it just <laughs> it just fleshes out the character beyond just being an interesting an interesting face. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I think we get we both get very excited when we saw those little details and a lot of times surprises. So that was sort of the joy of once we get to observe closer because a lot of times they look great from far away, you know, these bold patterns, bold colors. And then but then as you observed as we get closer, the, all those little great details like the hand stitching or the ways that they'll customize the clothes to make them work better for themselves. So that might be, you know, um, adding interior pockets to their their jackets, which we see a ton, just these like little patches that they'll sew in there to keep their um, essentials in and little things like that. So that's actually some feedback that we've gotten from from others, including the children of some of the people we photographed. It's like, oh, I really, I kind of never noticed these small details and kind of the beauty in them. I mean, I love that people are, now observing that themselves and have learned to appreciate the beauty in, in those details. Making the discovery about those secret pockets. That was, that was wonderful. I love that, that idea that when you guys mentioned about the, uh, the elastic pants and that you use that sort of as a, as a, a way of commiserating with each other, that you, you're all wearing it. It was just, I, it's like reading a, uh, a rich short story or a novel where those small little details just bring something to to life. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the book, both in terms of the imagery and the text, is those little details that really make each person and each experience really unique, right? Because I, I think that, especially now because of all the violence towards Asian Americans in the past, you know, in the past several months, one of the things that I, I really love about the book, and I would hope that anybody who picks it up appreciates it, is sort of the humanity that you bring to people who are otherwise ignored, not just because they're Asian American, but just because they're older. You know, we tend to sort of like see an old person and just not even give them the, any sort of attention, much less engage with them in a, in a direct way. And I know that one of the people who you interviewed in the book made that comment that how much they appreciated that you guys took the time to speak with them. Though, though people, though many people were reluctant to have you photograph them and to be interviewed by you. Tell me about, about that part of that, about being able to engage with people and, and have them share your stories. What, what do you think helped you besides the translator to be able to connect with those people and have them be willing to share themselves with you. I think just showing like a genuine interest 
And like, there's so much to learn if you pay attention, right? Like secret pockets. <laughs> Someday soon, we'll, we'll be putting them in our pants or, you know, maybe they'll make them like that in the future. <laughs> uh, really comfortable shoes. Like right now I'm rocking San Antonio Shoemakers or SAS shoes. They're like preferred by the older set, but I'm like, you know, this is great for walking in on the daily. So yeah, there's just so much to learn by paying attention. And um, I think they are willing to open up because maybe they don't get asked these questions all the time. So they're caught off guard and maybe also kind of intrigued and have a lot to share. Most people have experienced war. They have immigrated here, maybe not knowing English, maybe had to work their second or third career well into their 60s. They've had to start over in so many different fronts. And so um, I think they have a lot of wisdom to share. And we're so lucky that over 100 of them, you know, shared, shared their wisdoms for this project. It's, I was glad that you included, you know, the history behind these respective Chinatowns, how they were the result of the labor, Chinese labor that came first for the gold rush and later on for um, the building of the railroads and how the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, affected where they could live and where they could buy property. And as a result, um, these communities were sort of like the, the, the home for these Chinese populations, you know, for, for, for decades. But it's interesting to see how what the population is sort of made up now, that these are people who may have lived in the suburbs at one point, but they're coming to these communities because they want to have a sense of belonging rather than just being alone. And that was another really interesting thing to sort of read about is how important their times in the parks, um, at the market, you know, at the community center are. Tell us about, you know, that aspect of your discovery in terms of, of what kept these people, it seems like, young and active, you know, and not, because it's amazing because I'm looking at 80-year-old people living by themselves to a large extent, and then yet they're, they're still out there being able to do just that. It's very inspiring. Right. I mean, Chinatowns are some of the most densely populated neighborhoods, I think. And that's why we were first drawn to it as far as people watching, because there's so much going on, so much to observe. And what we've noticed is that a lot of the seniors, you know, they don't need to drive in Chinatowns. They are able to walk to buy their groceries every morning, to buy fresh groceries, to go see their doctor. You know, they can see their friends in the park, everything that they need on a daily basis is within, you know, a mile of them. And as far as language, you know, they don't, if, if they don't speak English very well, most of the people we meet, you know, mainly speak Chinese. So it really is an enclave that they can feel comfortable in where they can get by and communicate. So I think that's really important. That was something we important to realize too, is that, is that this is where they can feel at home. Yeah, Chinatowns are very important as a neighborhood and as um, a landing pad for immigrants. And we've learned so much about Chinatown, the neighborhood, through doing the project. You know, we first started the project, you know, really curious about the fashion. But as we started to talk to the people we were photographing and meeting, we learned, oh, there's so much more to dig into. There's so many stories um, to learn. There's a lot of wisdom to be shared. And Chinatown plays a big part of that, I think, project in a lot of ways is, you know, this love letter to the neighborhood as well. Valerie, you're, you're a writer, Andrea, you're the photographer, bringing very different skill sets to it. 
how do you feel each of you helped the other in terms of being able to produce produce the work other than you know fulfilling one particular role andrea had a great observation or note where she was like you know we we gave each other the energy to do this because as we mentioned earlier we have a 90 percent rejection rate so <laughs> we depend and we feed off each other's energy a lot so even though you know we'll go out for three hours and maybe are lucky to get one or two people that are willing to participate in the project, we at least get a relish in the the highs and the lows together um, and the wins and also the losses are the ones that got away. So I think that's a big part of our partnership mm. is like, you know, going out there, hitting the streets for, you know, like six years together and keeping up that energy and that enthusiasm. And for you, Andrea? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is a project that 100% I wouldn't have, you know, it's not something I think we could both do individually. It really is um, a true collaboration and a product of, of bringing our different skill sets together. And as well, not just our skill sets, but also, you know, our different personalities. I'm pretty introverted. Um, I'm not prone, as prone to chatting people up on the street, but that is, you know, one of Valerie's superpowers is, is talking to strangers. So you know, we we're able to get these stories and we we're able to get the seniors to open up to us because of Val's personality and the persistence. And yeah, also, like she said, it really was really helpful to have someone to share, not only in the joy, but the heartbreak, the heartbreak that we would experience over and over again, you know, nine out of 10 times. So that's a big part of the project is it's been the challenge, the challenge of being rejected. And I think that's not something that would have, I would have wanted to face alone, to be honest. But it it was fun to do it with Val because it made it more of an experience, not just, it wasn't about the rejection. It was about the highs, the highs of actually enjoying the highs together of when we could actually grab a portrait and talk with them. In some of the um, profiles, we discover extensive stories about people's lives. There's a woman who was a cabaret dancer, and that's how she supported herself and her family. There was another one, well, another person who was imprisoned in China for you know a couple of decades, uh, and there are others where the where the story is relatively brief. And I'm wondering, in terms of the what you guys faced in terms of soliciting stories from people, because I know that. Some people may have been very reluctant to share personal, personal things, and others were more ready, uh, more readily did. But talk about the desire and and what you guys learned in terms of what may have been effective for you to be able to elicit that from from the people you were talking to. I think a huge part of it was just came down to time. Like, did they have to board a bus in like five minutes? And mm. then, you know, like Estelle Kelly, who was a cabaret dancer, she was connected to us through her granddaughter, who Andrea's friends with. And so we were able to have multiple visits with her. And because she kind of was born in the U.S. and sp- spent a lot of her childhood here, it was easier to communicate with her because she could speak English. And then some people, there's, a, yeah, there's the time aspect. And I think Asian culture in general tends to be more private. And we are coming out with them with a lot. Like there's a gaggle of women being like, oh my God, you look fantastic. Can we talk to you? Can we take your photo? What's your life story? <laughs> what are you up to today? So it's a lot. It depends on the person and sometimes their mood that day and how much time they have. One story that comes to mind is the red hat. She was someone we met in um, Chicago, Chinatown. 
And her caretaker brought her to listen to Chinese opera in the library. There's a lot of programming for senior citizens there, especially since the weather can be a little touch and go. And she brought up the war and how they, she lived in Toisan or that part of China and villages were burned down. Everyone had to flee. And then she just stopped. And the, our interpreter was like, you know, I don't know if it's a matter of her not remembering or not, or if it's too painful to talk about. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of trauma there. And she was able to talk about some of it, but definitely not all of it. And I, we understand why. Yeah. You know, my parents, though, similar, you know, they came from growing up in a dictatorship. We could never crack that egg to have them talk about, you know, what it was like. And now I, I can understand that it was likely due to just trauma, you know, not just stubbornness. Because I wanted to hear those stories, but you know, I was never able to get them to, to to share that with me, partly because they felt like it wasn't something that they wanted to remember. So I just had to come to sort of respect respect that. When you think about your own grandparents, your, your own relationships um, with, you know, with your grandmothers and your grandfathers, how did this experience change or, or evolve the way that you considered not only their relationship to you, but the stories that you may ha- or may not have known completely. I think this project in a, in a lot of ways was born, or the interest in um, the seniors was came from me not feeling very close to my grandparents. So, you know, I lost my grandfathers pretty early on. And then um, I didn't live or grow up near my grandmas. And they also didn't they also didn't speak very much English, if at all. So it was, you know, we would spend time together, but it's hard to communicate. There's a lot of barriers, um, barriers to um, to communicating. So even though I love them, it was it was very difficult to, and and I think I wanted to get to know them better and to understand them better. So in hindsight, you know, after talking with hundreds of people, I think I think I do better understand my my grandmas better and where they're coming from, because a lot of the stories that we hear are similar and have a lot of overlap with my family history. So, you know, my mom's side immigrated from Southern China and my grandma worked, worked in sewing factories and she brought over paper sons and had to leave, you know, children behind in China. Um, There's a lot of, a lot of similarities um, that we hear over and over. And so through the project, um, even though my grandmas have passed, it encouraged me to ask my parents uh, more and to dig deeper because like you, they didn't offer up a lot of these stories when I was growing up. So I didn't I didn't know so much of my family history, but more recently I've been asking lots of questions, trying to get dates, trying to get, you know, figure out the family tree and writing it all down so that there's a li- at least a bit of a family history record. It's been beautiful that this project has opened up my curiosity to look towards my own family too, because so much of that was not discussed growing up. And like um, Valerie mentioned, and you you observed, yeah, there's a lot of trauma that goes on, especially with immigrating and and living through wars and being separated from family. So that's been that has been a cool thing to um, learn more about my own family, though. Yeah, I see you nodding your head, Valerie. Yeah, both of you brought up like your parents not sharing as much. And I think it's about having the space for parents to talk about it because we can come kind of like a reporter style, like, hey, mom and dad, like what happened here? (laughs) And they might not be ready for that. 
I had this really sweet experience with my mom in Vietnam where we're like, you know, because of the time difference, we're both awake at like 5 a.m. And she told some deep stories that I've never heard before that were really personal. And um, I think it was just the, the context of being in Vietnam again brought up a lot of memories for her. So I think my, yeah, I'm like, to hear more stories, I'm trying to like leave more space. You know, maybe it comes out when you're cooking rather than when you're asking questions. Mm. Maybe it comes out when you're uh, just on scheduling weekly phone calls and there's a silence and uh, maybe they'll, they'll bring up something or something you say reminds them of something. So that, that's something that came to mind was just like having more opportunities for stories to naturally come up. But in regards to my own grandparents, one thing I learned from the project was that my grandma and I dress pretty similar, which is something we talk about in the book. Uh, we both prefer yeah. our like kind of high-waisted pants um, rather than wearing dresses or skirts. Like Andrea's grandma, uh, my mom, my grandma was also a seamstress. It was good to kind of see that uh, commonality through other kind of uh, people that we interviewed. And what's really nice about this project is that we get to think about our grandparents on the daily basis which isn't something I did before Chinatown Pretty. Through interviews, through swapping stories with people that have seen our project, we get to talk about senior citizens and then our, in turn our own grandparents on a daily basis. And um, my step-grandma, Anna Lee, who's in the book, passed away two years ago. But she's very much alive. Like I get to talk about her every day and I inherited half her closet and I wear them you know, on a weekly basis. So it feels nice to keep them in spirit through this project. In my job at the Huntington Library and Art Museum, I digitize parts of their extensive collection of artworks, documents, and books. I'm currently photographing letters from the 17th century that were used as evidence in England's effort to abolish slavery. Holding these documents in my hands is both surreal and humbling. Handling these materials is a unique experience that I believe goes to the importance of the physical object, especially when it comes to photography. Though I look at countless images on a computer screen or on my phone, nothing replaces looking at a photograph on a printed page, especially in the form of a book. When the Charcoal Book Club wanted to sponsor the show, I agreed immediately because I believed in what they were doing, showcasing great work on the printed page. They are helping to promote and showcase the work of photographers who are producing exceptional work and deserve an audience. It's a big reason why I think you should become a member and experience those great titles for yourself. They offer first edition books showcasing the best talents in contemporary photography. But if you don't like that month's selection, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. As COVID restrictions are lessened, People are planning to get out, vacation, or just enjoy a long weekend. For photographers, this means finally being able to get out and make photographs on a city street, in a national park, or while vacationing in a foreign city. It's time to take that camera bag that has been collecting dust for the past year 
and doing something with it. But you might also see this as an opportunity to try out some new gear, be it a lens or a camera that you've been considering over this long period. LensRentals.com provides you the means to test the waters with that piece of kit before you commit to buy. They have a large inventory of photographic gear from cameras, lenses, lighting, and more. Regardless of what you need or what you need it for, they have it, and all for a reasonable and fair price. If you're worried about something bad happening while using their gear, they offer two different insurance options, so your rental is protected against damage and theft. So use it worry-free. Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at lensrentals.com slash newsletter. And thanks to those of you who financially support The Candid Frame. Your belief in what we do means the world to us, and it's helped us through so many growing pains. I can't thank you enough. But if you haven't yet, you can help contribute to our work by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Just $5 a month from you can make a big difference. Thank you so much for your kindness and your help. Yeah, I found myself thinking about my own grandmother a lot looking through your book. Not that I remember her having a particular fashion style. But I just found myself thinking about what I did remember of her, you know, which was how thin and strong her fingers were. She had these very, very long fingers and her laugh, which my mother shares as my mom's in her 80s now. When she laughs, I hear my, my grandmother's laugh. And it's just nice to be feel connected in that way to, to them and their family history, even if I don't know all the, all the details. You talk about one of the things that I was that really piqued my interest is you guys talked about getting together over dim sum and throughout the book, people talk about families getting together for dim sum, and for me, I think I, tell me about that aspect of the culture because it came up over and over again, and I just like to get a greater understanding of what that's about. Yeah, well, definitely in Asian culture, a lot of connection and family time is around food, so gathering around food and literally at you know in dim sum restaurants you're gathered around a large circular table you got the lazy susan going um, it's very communal it's very loud usually and yeah there's just so many memories made over over food including dim sum and that was um i didn't grow up around a lot of asian people a lot of asian um there weren't really strong asian communities but I do remember there would be like one Chinese restaurant that we could go and have dim sum. And that was how, when I was young, that was something that connected me to my heritage when there wasn't really much else around me is, is the food. So I think for me, that's always been a thread that can connect me back to being Chinese. I'm so glad you brought up the dim sum because with COVID, a lot of us haven't been able to dine with our family especially at dim sum where it's usually indoors with round tables and dim sum carts passing by that you need to flag down. So yeah, thanks for the reminder. I hope it's something we can get back into again and maybe incorporate into our lives, you know, now that we have an appreciation for, for that type of experience. I think it's something that a lot of us have an appreciation for. I, I know I do, 
that how much that time with family and friends around food was so important. For the entire year, the only thing I, I fixated about is the next time I was going to be able to share a meal with people I care about. That's it. Nothing else. You know, it wasn't going off on vacation. It wasn't being able to go to the beach. It was like, no, I just want to be in a room eating good food, talking, laughing, drinking, and having a good time. And that's what's precious to me. And I think that despite all the adversity that the past year has delivered to all of us, that that so many of us have come to recognize what that 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 thing is is really important. That connection to somebody else. You guys were working on this project for five years, which is or six going on six or more. This point, five or six years. We started in twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. Um, okay. So it's been. We worked on um, capturing and meeting people for about five years, and the book project was another two years. So it's been it's been about seven years at this yeah. point. You know, it first started for a magazine article, and then it turned into a sort of a blog, and then eventually into this this book. Um, tell me about that sort of gestation from one form to another and how you came to, you know, feel eventually that this thing needed to be a book. I think one of my favorite things about starting out projects is just to start out doing it. Usually for me, finding a partner in crime is really helpful and then seeing where it evolves because we didn't set out to create even an Instagram or let alone a book. We just were so stoked on this fashion sense that we're like, we pitched it to an online magazine and, you know, we had shot for a few months and, um, you know, it was really well received, but, you know, we're like, Oh, that's great. Like, let's move on. Or, you know, that was a great experience. And then like one or two years later, Chinatown community development center, which is a nonprofit in Chinatown reached out to us and they're like, we love this website. We'd love to do a, a photo show with you and collaborate with you. And we're like, one, it's not a website. It was just an article. But yeah, sure, let's do it. And that catalyzed us to create an Instagram because we're shooting a lot for the show. And then, um, you know, start a Tumblr where we could share the photos that we were capturing in the interviews. And um, that experience was a success. And then we just kept going, just shooting, interviewing, updating, posting. And then five years later, it, we had enough to like, you know, put it in a book. And I think putting it in physical form was really important to us because, you know, there was so many hours in Chinatown, so many people and, you know, the Instagram grid is only so big <laughs> and we wanted to, to be able to showcase it and like have people look at it a little bit closer and a little bit slower rather than scrolling or swiping, really looking at the beautiful details. Cause there are so many and uh, spending time with the stories that accompany the photos. You you covered Chinatowns in Los Angeles, Oakland, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and Vancouver. Did the impetus to visit those various Chinatowns come as a result of making the decision to produce the book? Or had that happened even before then? We had visited um, Los Angeles and New York at that point, uh, before we had started to discuss the book. And, you know, being in the Bay Area, we had also covered Oakland and we started the project in San Francisco. So we had, you know, we had some photos from, from four cities, but not a ton, you know, maybe it's just that we happened to be in LA and would go out for a couple hours. Um, but when we did um, sign, sign with our publisher, Chronicle Books, um, they really recommended that we, 
go to more Chinatowns and get more photos and stories from other Chinatowns, as well as visit a Chinatown in Canada. Um, and that was actually kind of a marketing move so that they could really market the book in in Canada, because since we since the contents would cover that country. So, so that was sort of a, the reason that we went to Vancouver, but you know, Vancouver does have one of the largest, I think, Chinese populations in North America. So it did make sense to visit there. And we had a wonderful time there and just connected with a lot of young people trying to, you know, preserve Chinatown as a neighborhood and doing a lot of great um, grassroots organizing around that. And the people there as well were were very, actually very welcoming and very open. So our success rate in Canada, as well as Chicago, was probably more like 70%. So we had a lot more luck talking to people in the Midwest, as well as Canada. So those, you know, those stereotypes about Canadians and Midwest people being being really nice, um, actually rang true for us. <laughs> Tell me about the reaction to the book, not only from the people you may have uh, photographed and who got to see themselves in the book, but family members and other people who wrote or, or who have met you and given you feedback on it. What's been the response? When I showed my grandma the book, she just hit me and was like, I'm old and like laughed. <laughs> and I'm like, grandma, that's the whole point. <laughs> um, we had, but you know, we get these beautiful messages um, through Instagram and email uh, because our book came out during the pandemic, we weren't able to do a book tour and like hear the responses in person. Um, so we've been just like getting messages. And the other day someone wrote my nephew or someone or my cousin, my, my three-year-old cousin or nephew came over, a very, very young kid, and saw the book on my coffee table and picked it up and said, is grandma in this book? And they said, you know, as an Asian American, it's not every day or every book where you get to say that. Is grandma in this book? Mm. And so that that really touched me. That's great. How about you, Andrea? I've kind of been surprised at how well received it's been amongst um, seniors. So whether they're in the book or just the the age, like over over seventy, I've heard feedback from from friends and my parents' friends who are my parents are you know, old enough to be in the book right now. But yeah, I think they've been delighted to see people that look like them, to see that kind of representation. So that's really been sweet to hear. Um, but yeah, we've had a great reception and have received some really kind notes. And I think hearing from from family members, like grandkids, kids, um, nieces and nephews, when they discover that they're... <laughs> their family member actually is in the book. Uh, we got a note from from someone who saw an article that was in the Cut magazine online. And they thought, they had said, oh, I wonder I wonder if my, my family or my great aunt and great uncle might be in the book. And there they were. They were actually like one of the first photos. They're the Jungs, who I mentioned before, wearing the bright yellow matching sweatsuits. Yeah, they're amazing. So they, yeah, <laughs> so great. They wrote us a note. And um, to hear that we've done done their spirit justice, that we've been able to capture them and their essence um, has been great feedback as well. Um, I have a little story as well. Um, 
today, Eva Chen, who's like head of fashion at Instagram, you know, she has a copy of the book and was like, I'm, you know, Chinatown Pretty is my style inspo for today. So you have influencers and fashion people and Vogue online and Vogue magazine posting about it. But then, you know, we had someone reach out from a government agency who works on affordable housing. And these are a lot of their clients. So it speaks to not only like the people in the fashion world and Asian Americans, but also government agencies and museums and institutions. And it's just really beautiful to see how this type of like humanistic, human-centered stories can hit all sorts of people. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because that was also a, a thing that that I, I, I wanted to talk to you about is is the whole issue of affordable housing for, for seniors you know, and how these communities that are made up largely of, of, of seniors, you know, are sometimes uh, being pushed out of those communities because of gentrification and, and, and development. And this this community that has been thriving for so long is is, is threatened. You know, I think one of the people uh, in there was talking about she pays like $3,000 a month in rent. And there's another person who's paying $800 in rent. I don't know if they were, if they can't remember if they were in the same city or not, but that really kind of speak to the disparity in terms of, you know, the cost of living in these different, in these different cities. Um, can you speak to how, you know, those concerns of development are, are impacting, you know, these various communities that, uh, that you visited? It's a big concern, I think, um, for every for every Chinatown that we visited, and and pretty much every Chinatown that exists. They might have been around for decades, but they tend to be in locations now that are considered prime real estate. Like in San Francisco, it's sort of in the heart of financial districts, so it's definitely a concern about developers encroaching on it. But what we've learned through the project is that the Chinatowns that we see today, you know, they might. They're changing and evolving, but they exist. And um, the ones that remain livable as a neighborhood exist because there's a lot of nonprofit and behind the scenes work going on. Um, A lot of work to protect the community, to protect sort of the aesthetic of it as well. Like, especially in San Francisco, if you've been to that Chinatown, there's so much interesting kind of architecture. It was rebuilt after the earthquake. Um, very colorful, kind of almost like a faux, like almost like a set. Some of it looks, um, it looks so colorful and was kind of meant to be attractive to visitors, actually. So, so that's being preserved, the architecture, the livability, the affordable housing. And through the project, we were able to connect with a lot of, a lot of the nonprofits. And we would make sure to reach out to ones in each and every city that we visited. Um, because they're really the insiders, you know, we're, we're outsiders to Chinatown. We love it and appreciate it, but they're the ones that are working every day on the ground, connecting with the people who live there, connecting with the merchants. So they really know it inside out and they're really the best people to kind of work with and and volunteer with and, and raise funds for to help, to help ensure the future of Chinatown. Yeah. You're each storytellers in your, in your own way. And how has this experience influenced the way you feel that you tell stories, whether it's in words or whether it's in photographs? For me, it's an attitude or state of mind. So we, we come into this celebrating and just wanting to share, you know, the awesome fashion and stories that we've, we've come across in Chinatowns. And it's celebration brings a lot of different type of people in. It, it welcomes you in. It draws you in. 
So that's something I'm going to take with me is like, how can we approach whatever social issue or story with a lens of joy and celebration? And for you, Andrea? I think through the lens of really treating everyone like a deep and complicated human, you know, I think, I think a lot of the people that we met through the project, you know, you might brush city, you might live in the same city as them. You might live in the same neighborhood and brush shoulders with them, but there's so many barriers. It's really hard to, it's really hard to sort of access them in a way and to communicate. So, but it doesn't mean they should be ignored or, you know, or, or really dismissed. So, this project in a way, the way that it sort of broke it, I think people have responded so positively to it is because I think there's a deep curiosity about other humans, but sometimes you're not able to access it. So just thinking about everyone that you encounter or pass on the street, that they might have these really beautiful stories to tell and they might have a lot of wisdom to share. So that's something I've learned is having that chance to to speak with a lot of them and to hear to hear their stories is really kind of made me think about people on the street in a different way. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend uh, usually a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or recently discovered, but it can, in this case, since we have two of you, um, it could be a photographer, it could be a writer or some other creative that you feel people should check out. So who would they be and why? I'm going to need a second on this. (laughs) (laughs) Most people do. (laughs) Um, I'll go ahead and um, shout out Michael Jang. So I actually recently bought his monograph, and I have it right here. Um, His monograph is called Who is Michael Jang? And yeah, it's this beautiful book. Are you familiar with his work? No, I'm not. He is a California photographer. He went to art school. I think at CalArts and then later SFAI in San Francisco. And he had this, he's worked as a professional photographer for decades and he had like a 40 year archive of personal work. Um, He shoots, you know, a lot of black and white 35 millimeter street photography. And I guess back in the day, um, SFMOMA, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art used to have sort of an open door policy for photographers where you could drop off photos and they'd consider it for their collection. So I think he decided to drop off some of his early work um, in the early 2000s. And the story goes is that they loved it and he was relatively unknown then because he'd just been shooting professionally but hadn't shown um, sort of the special personal work. And I really love his series called The Jings where he, he actually turns the lens on his cameras. And this is when I think he was still in art school early, early 70s. And he documented his aunt and uncle and it, and his two, two cousins. And the photos are just, they're so spontaneous. Um, there's so much humor in them. I mean, just looking through the book the other day, I was laughing out loud, which I feel like I, I'm not, I don't laugh out loud with too many photos, but I just couldn't help it. They were just such funny moments that he was able to capture he's just super talented and I think when I first saw his work you know probably over 15 maybe 20 years ago I think that was probably soon after SFMOMA acquired some of his work I just had not seen a lot of photos depicting 
Asian Americans, especially from that era. So, you know, whenever I see a photo of Asians from the 70s, I also think about my own um, family's photo albums. And just it's so cool to see that in a fine art context because you don't you don't see that every day. So, yeah, I, I mean, his work is just brilliant. And I think he's seen he's seen like a huge um, he's gotten a lot of visibility, I think, recently, too. So it's really cool to see that kind of work out in the world and a lot more people coming across it. Well, thank you for that. I look forward to find, checking out his work. And Valerie? Uh, there is an Instagram called 1721 um, Women. Uh, it's run by Doris Hokane, who is a, a researcher, archivist. And uh, they're coming out with a book with Penguin Books, Spring 2022. And their project profiles or, yeah, profiles or explains um, great Asian American women across history, filmmakers, artists, activists. And for me, I'm looking, you know, I don't know too much about Asian Americans across history and their contributions. So this will be a great way to learn and to find new heroes, find new people to put on pedestals and to celebrate and to draw inspiration from. I think oftentimes we pull from the same hat of names because that's what's given to us in mass media and in history. And I'm so excited for this book to come out for a, a whole, for, for my generation, for a few generations to be like, here are like a bunch of badass women that we can talk about and celebrate and learn from and continue to add to the conversation with. Well, thank you for those recommendations and thanks for a great book. I really am enjoying it. And, and uh, best of luck with all the efforts going forward. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for it's having nice us. What you. a nice like little Friday wind down. Thanks to Andrea Lowe and Valerie Liu for joining us. Find out more about their project by visiting ChinatownPretty.com. Your thoughts and feelings about this show matter. If you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or any service that you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Patrick Grady for his recent contribution. I'm also going to be leading my Using Your Life to Launch Your Photography online workshop in July. Find out more by clicking on the link on the website, in the show notes, or visit nabechicreative.com. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>